Tonight, covering the climate crisis. As world leaders convene in New York for Climate Week, we explore the threat posed by extreme weather across the country and the emerging solutions and meet the journalists on the front lines playing a vital role in facing down this global emergency. That, as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. This week is Climate Week in New York City, an annual event that brings tremendous attention to the impact of climate change around the world. On Wednesday, the United Nations convened a summit with a focus on getting governments and businesses to accelerate action on climate before it's too late. While leaders from around the world gathered here to talk about the climate crisis and protesters marched to demand an end to fossil fuels, we want to focus our attention tonight on the critical role that journalism now plays as the world faces this climate emergency. With us as part of our Pearl and Promise initiative are three journalists reporting from the front lines of the climate crisis. All three are winners of this year's Covering Climate Now Journalism Awards announced earlier this week. Meet the journalists doing the best reporting on the biggest story of our time. While the world battles record heat, fires, drought, and floods, this year's Covering Climate Now award winners help people understand what's happening and how to fix it. The shocking delay and denial by governments and companies. The injustice of drought-starved children in Somalia. The urgency in Pakistan, a third of the country underwater. We are standing here fighting against that system which is making a profit out of crisis. The activists and frontline communities demanding change. Citizens blocking a company from leveling a village for the coal beneath it. Lawyers suing fossil fuel companies for their decades of disinformation. An island state prime minister demanding the biggest polluters pay for climate damages. These award winners arm the public with knowledge, hold bad actors to account, and light a path to survival. For their incredible journalism, for their invaluable contributions, we salute the winners of the 2023 Covering Climate Now Journalism Awards. And joining us now are Mark Albert, investigative journalist and winner of the Short Video Award for his seven-part series on how counties across the country are impacted by climate change and what they're doing about it. Also joining us, Cameron Oglesby, winner of the Student Journalist of the Year Award for her multifaceted work exploring stories of climate and environmental impact on Black and Indigenous communities. And also, Aline Brown, winner of the Multimedia Award for her reporting on how prison populations are put at risk 
by climate events and extreme weather. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on these very well-deserved awards for the important work you have been doing. I wanna talk with each of you about your specific projects. So Mark, I'm, I'm gonna start with you if I can. And you, it was very interesting what you did because you took a broad look, as I mentioned in the introduction, counties across the country. Why did you decide to take that approach and what were you hoping to get from it? Well, as the former speaker Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local, right? And so if we can distill these global topics into something where viewers, listeners, and readers know how it is affecting them, then they are much more likely to have buy-in for that. They're much more likely to pay attention. And so we sent out a survey to every county in America and all cities over 50,000 people. And we asked these questions that we had crafted with climate researchers to get at how is the changing climate affecting them? And the responses, Jack, were so nuanced, so varied, that it told us we needed to tell this story, not just one story for the nation, but how can we relate this to all of our communities? You know, we've got markets in Boston, Orlando, and Sacramento, but in the deep South, Jackson, Mississippi, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Savannah, Georgia, how do you tell a story that resonates in all of those different communities? That's how we approach this series. And I, I think the, the genius of that is this is an overarching problem, but it affects different areas, regions, people very differently. And I think that's what, what and certainly why you won this award. That's what you did here. I'm, I'm going to toss to a quick clip here from um, a bite from the first video in the series where you're hearing from a, a Louisiana man whose home was destroyed by rising sea levels. Take a quick look at this. Yep, this is home. For 13 years, these stairs led Dwayne Sylvie to his Port Sulphur, Louisiana home. Now they lead to ruin. Wow. <laughs> this is home. All my <laughs> nephew stuff, my stuff. It's heartbreaking, man. Seeing everything you work for, look at it. Hurricane Ida blew away the heart from the Sylvie family home, surging floodwaters in and leaving mold, collapsed ceilings, and washed up dreams. Everything flooded. Do you believe that climate change played a role in the destruction of your home? Yes, we haven't seen a storm. These storms get this strong, you know? And it's like it's getting progressively worse. Worse for his wife and kids, and worse for this small neighborhood, where Ida last year destroyed nine of the 11 homes. Increasingly severe weather has now come for the Sylvie family twice. My grandmother and them live here all their life, Katrina, took her house. So let me understand this. Your grandmother lost her house to Hurricane Katrina. Yes. And you've now lost your house to Hurricane Ida. Yes. What does that say to you? Something has to be done. So now, Mark, understanding that you talk to so many people, so many different regions and areas. My question to you is this. We, we see images often of receding shorelines, of disappearing snow caps. But what did you learn about the human impact of climate change based upon your work here? I think sometimes we get diluted by the impact that will be coming. We hear scientists and researchers say, well, by 2040, or if we go up 1.5 degrees Celsius, this is going to happen. It's not happening in 2040 or 2050. 
It is happening now. It is affecting our communities across the country, whether it's Hoboken, New Jersey, that's creating these parks to take in stormwater because they're flooding communities, whether you're going to Texas communities that are trying to seed the clouds to get more moisture because the drought is so intense, or the extreme wildfires in Colorado where we went as well. This is happening now. In that piece that you just played, we went to the very southern piece of Louisiana where the coastline has already receded. And that is impacting homeowners now. It is not theoretical. It is not in a study. It is affecting people and displacing people now. You talked a a few moments ago about how you went about gathering this information. I, I was fascinated by how you went about then dispersing this information, that you essentially went to local markets and you had trusted local anchors delivering the results of this to their local communities. And and an unusual, a little bit of a different approach. Why did you decide on that? Local news, every survey finds, is still the most trusted source of news. And so we didn't want to just do one style of story, one story across the country. Instead, what we did was we did the national angle. Here's what's happening nationally. We sent that out from our investigative unit. But then we gave all of our stations and all of our markets in all the states data from this survey. Here is how communities in California responded. Here is how communities in New Mexico responded. They then, the stations, could take out those examples that we sent in the survey data and say, well, in this community, this is happening. Here's what's being done now with these initiatives. Or as we saw in Ohio, some school districts um, saying that they need to fortify their campuses. They don't have the money to do so. To Uh, 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 with this impact of a changing climate. And so we didn't want one size fits all. We had this data from across the country. Let's use it and tell stories in a local manner. When you talk about those stories and the different people you've talked to, I'm I'm curious about what you found in those conversations. This is a very general question, and it probably doesn't lend itself to a real specific answer. But you oftentimes hear some people in response to this, these questions and these issues will say, look, this is just the natural course of human nature. Others will say, no, there's a problem here and we can and should do something about it. What were you finding in terms of the variety of responses you got from subjects in, the, in your conversations? It's hard to deny the existence of something when your neighbors are facing it. When your grandmother lost her home in the hurricane and 16 years later, you've now lost your home in an even stronger hurricane. We didn't focus on whether climate change is real. We never even used the phrase. We talked about a changing climate. Our series name is Forecasting Our Future. We don't want our viewers, listeners, and readers to be turned off by some phrase that may be a trigger for somebody in certain communities. Instead, we focused on reality. What is happening now? What can we show you now? What are communities doing now? How much is it costing now? Those are things you can't argue with, Jack. They're in your community. They're in your neighborhood. And and that's fascinating. Once again, reinforcing the notion of the words that we use matter when we have conversations with people. Let me jump around um, to to the others here, the other award winners. And Cameron, I'll I'll come to you if if I might. And again, congratulations to you, uh, student journalists. Congratulations for your graduation from Duke University. Um, But let me ask about your project. And you actually have a couple of things that, that garnered this award for you. And one of them focused on the use of, of Navajo lands to generate power for the city of Los Angeles. And I suspect people's reaction will be the same as mine, which was, 
I didn't know that. And why is that happening? Talk a little bit about how you found that story and what you found as a consequence of the work that you did. So I, I do want to start off in highlighting the importance of this story, um, not just for the Navajo Nation, but for the many indigenous tribes that exist all across the country in terms of historical disinvestment in energy resources, infrastructure, water, right? We're, we're talking about communities I've interacted with, not just out west, but also in North Carolina and Virginia. And so the importance of this piece in my mind was um, using this specific example of uh, of an indigenous community, indigenous tribe that has for so long provided for the surrounding cities and communities without really receiving that infrastructure investment themselves, and uh, the sort of hypocrisy of that. And as we see this transition to renewable energy all across the country, um, noting that it seems that these communities continue to be taken from and taken from rather than uh, seeing this infusement of renewable energy investment, infrastructure investment, et cetera. So that was sort of the larger touch point of the piece. I came across it just because I was reporting for Grist um, on a bunch of different environmental issues, honestly. And I had By seen- By the way, that's the way you find some of your best stories. You know, yeah, you're working yeah, something, exactly. looking, we've, we've all been there where all of a sudden something jumps out and, and your reaction is, whoa, why do I not know about that? And why doesn't everybody else know about that? Here's my next story, right? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I had seen some reporting on it uh, for some uh, news outlets that are based out West. And um, it was really about the Navajo generating station being closed down. People weren't really talking about um, the double standard that existed on Navajo lands with regard to they're closing down this this station that has given a lot of people jobs, provided all of these communities energy because they want to transition to renewables, but they're not investing in that community. I hadn't seen that touch point. So that's kind of why I decided to go a little further into it and use it as an example for larger uh, issues in indigenous communities. Tell us a little bit about how that works, because I saw in, 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 as a consequence of some of your research and your reporting that that uh, that there are something like 15 or 16,000 Navajo homes that don't have power and yet how is what could otherwise be dedicated to them making its way to Los Angeles? How does that happen? I think uh, I'm going to speak about this in a more uh, a larger term, I suppose, this idea that historically, the way that infrastructure, energy infrastructure, water infrastructure, all of these different essential services have been and have not been placed in certain communities has been an inherently extractive uh, of Black, of Indigenous, of, of uh, BIPOC communities, right? So the logistics of it, to my understanding, is really this idea that historically, they saw this location as an excellent place to uh, extract uh, <laughs> energy resources out of and produce energy in a way that honestly has historically caused harm to many of the communities in the area um, as a result of systemic racism, as a result of environmental racism, uh, while refusing to reinvest those resources back into the community. I know that's a pretty that's a large answer, but I want to keep right. it large in the fact that, again, this is not the only community, the only Black or Indigenous community that is contended with this. I wanted this to serve as a larger example of the hypocrisy that seems to exist in this country regarding environmental racism and energy justice. And that situation re requires and deserves a large answer. So so <laughs> thanks to you for that. I, I want to mention one other project, because you had a couple that were part of this, that generated this award for you. And in, in another piece, you explored the idea of what's called intersectional environmentalism. I suspect a lot of folks, even those who were actively engaged in, in studying this and being concerned, doing something about it, might not understand that concept. Explain that to us. 
That's a good question. I am I uh the, the term intersectional environmentalism is one that was technically coined in in 2020 or it became it was popularized in 2020 and it is a direct reaction as the piece highlights to the environmental movement the movement of the Sierra Club and of uh, such traditionalist presidents as Teddy Roosevelt right um the movement that many people uh, in the environment in, in environmental spaces aspire to um has historically left out communities of color has left out environmental justice issues issues of pollution intersectional environmentalism in my research is sort of the young person's version of environmental justice um and if i could just say the article really dives into this idea that environmental justice climate justice intersectional environmentalism all movements that have been created in 20 year increments, honestly, um, our direct response to the fact that the environmental movement has continued to fail communities of color. And 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 as an adjunct to that, I know you talk about it, it's sort of within what you explained to us, but talk a little bit about what you found in terms of the, the generational divide here, as people are looking, bo both recognizing the existence of problem and getting on board with the notion of something needs to be done. What did what are we seeing here in terms of a generational divide? I know the title says the generational rift. I, I did not pick that title. And that actually got a lot of a lot of attention on Twitter for the fact that there it's less so a generational rift. And it really gets back to that idea that for some reason, every new generation the, whether it's the the uh, Gen, Gen Xers to millennials creating climate justice to Gen Zers, my generation creating intersectional environmentalism, the rift is more so in this idea that the environmental movement has failed, communities of color has failed BIPOC folks, and people feel the need to reiterate. They feel the need to create additional terminology and additional focuses that attempt to bridge that divide between environmental justice as a concept and uh, the environmental movement as what is the honestly the prevailing movement for environmental action in this country and around the world. So I know I kind of repeated myself there, but I think there is less of a divide. People are drawing inspiration from the movements of of our elders from environmental justice as a movement when they created intersectional environmentalism, but they felt the need to create something new because something's not clicking in the larger space, right? And we're, we're trying to fix those problems. That's the focus of the piece. Good, good, understand a fabulous piece. Uh, Aline, to you, and, and thank you for sitting and patiently while we have these conversations. I wanna to come to you now and talk a little bit about that your award-winning work. So uh, somewhat similarly to what Cameron has been talking about, you were focusing on the idea of uh, the most vulnerable, but in, in your project, and it's called The Intercept, in your project, you're you're looking at not just a, a geographic area, but a, but a situational scenario. If we could explain to us then the the project, the intercept. Where did the idea come from? What were you hoping to show? Yeah, so the project was called Climate and Punishment, and it was published in the Intercept. Um, and uh, what we did, me and my reporting partner, Akil Harris, mapped the locations of more than 6,500 jails, prisons, detention facilities across the U.S. against various climate impacts. So against heat risk, wildfire risk, flood risk, just to see how many facilities were facing climate impacts as the crisis deepened. And what we found was that 
right now, today, thousands of facilities are facing really serious risks and really serious impacts in the moment, and that the the crisis is poised to become much worse. So just as an example, we found that more than a third of the detention facilities in the U.S. are in areas that have historically had more than 50 days a year with heat indexes above 90 degrees. So that's enough to make people dealing with health issues sick. That will go from one third of detention facilities to three quarters of the facilities across the U.S. No prison today is located in a county with more than 50 days a year at 105 degrees heat index. By 2100, almost 700 facilities will be at that level. And the issue there is that 44 states in the U.S. lack universal air conditioning, including New York, of course. Um, You know, this isn't an issue that's specific to the South. Um, Research has shown that research has tied mortality rates in the Northeast um, to heat. So for people in prisons, um, your risk of death increases on extreme heat days, especially if you're in a part of the country where um, facilities are not prepared for heat. Um, And in places where uh, people's bodies are not acclimated to heat. Let me ask you about this, and it, it, it has to do with coverage of the issues. Look, as, as we're all journalists. As journalists, our job is to shine a light on issues, to get people to better understand them. As we said before, to get people to, to watch and listen and read what we do and say, I didn't know that, I do now, and maybe now I can join in or somebody has to do something about that. So that is a preface. If, and, and based on what you just talked about, if I'm thinking of media coverage, let's talk about the, the stretch of, of horrendous weather we had this summer, the unbelievable high heat levels. I would say to you, I'm just trying to think off my head, I remember seeing stories being done about hospitals, how they're dealing with the heat, about Senior Citizen Center, how they're dealing, how schools are dealing. I don't recall, I'm not saying there weren't any, but I don't recall seeing anything that says and here is how the the detention centers or the federal prisons or the state prisons or the county jails, here's how they're dealing with it. And they're having some real problems. It, why do you think, Eileen, based upon all of your, your research here, why do you think that that area, that specific, as we said before, not a geographic, but a situational concern doesn't get as much exposure? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these are people who have been um, systematically like devalued by society. These are people that have been deemed criminals um, that, uh, you know, uh, people society has decided that these people did harm and that they're probably incarcerated because they deserve it. Um, Well, the fact is that, you know, at Rikers, for example, um, at New York City jails, um, a lot of the people incarcerated there have not even been uh, convicted of uh, their crimes as they deal with um, really inhumane heat conditions. In there's, there's simple, and we've done studies on this, it's an enormous number. I think it's at least half, maybe more, are just there awaiting the disposition of their cases. That uh, They haven't been adjudicated by criminals yet. They just can't pay bail. They can't get out. They're just sitting there. Yeah. And, um, you know, more than half of New York City jails uh, are, yeah, I believe it's more than half of the population of New York City jails 
um, do not have, are not in an air conditioned facility. Um, so I think that there's also this idea that, um, something like air conditioning is a luxury, uh, when, you know, as I mentioned, um, it's really, this is not just about comfort. This is about safety. Uh, people are dying and not being counted as, um, you know, having died because of heat related issues, but people are dying because of the heat in these facilities. Um, you know, our prisons and jails are not supposed to be places where cruel and unusual punishment takes place. Um, but when you're, you know, lying in the, these really extreme heat situations, it's hard to argue that it's not cruel and unusual punishment. And in fact, there are, um, you know, at least a couple of judges who have ruled that it ha it is in some cases, um, you know, and I think another issue is that we are so unprepared across the board for the deepening climate crisis, for these wildfires and these hurricanes that are hitting uh, communities so hard. And so, you know, one of the reasons why um, incarcerated populations are some of the most vulnerable is because they're going to be the last on the list that people are worried about, you know? Um, I mean, <laughs> that's not to say people who are from their communities, from the communities of prisoners, um, you know, which are disproportionately black and brown communities are certainly noticing that uh, their loved ones are facing really serious risks. Right. I, I got about a minute left here. And again, these have all been fascinating stories that you've all done and so, so deserving of the awards. Mark, let me ask you a last quick question, if I can, and maybe it's not fair to ask this big a question, but from you, you're reporting the work that you've done. Are you at all optimistic that, that we as a nation, as a society are starting to get it? that we're starting to understand some of the things that you've all reported on and understanding is the first step towards rectifying things? So I think so with this caveat that just as in every newsroom covers crime and transportation and politics, climate has to be right up there because it's already affecting our communities just like those topics. And what you've seen with Cameron and Eileen and, and our units reporting is that there is original, compelling, unique enterprise climate journalism that can be done to put a spotlight on how this is affecting our communities right now. It's real, it's here, we have to deal with it. Well, I, again, I wanna offer my congratulations to, to all of you and so pleased that you've been recognized for the, the quality of the work that you were doing and it's essential work that needs to be done for all of us. So, so my thanks on behalf of all of us to the three of you for the good work that you've done and so many other people who were doing that. So thank you so much, all of you for joining us and, and keep up the good work and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk with you again soon. You all be well now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.